we're here in a transition, a season, uh, a time where things are uh, shifting. And I'm always aware when things are changing that uh, I am like a stress savant. Anybody just a stress savant? Like you're just uh, world class, just super good, just really great at stressing things. Like things that don't happen, things that could happen six months from now, a year from now, five years from now. I'm already worried about like 10 years from now. Because uh, I just love to stress. There's just something about it. I, even though I know the medical uh, damage that it does to my body, uh, I like to stress. And uh, I'm often mindful, like, if, if I just knew everything in the future, like, would I stress less? Like, if you thought about this yourself, if you knew everything that was going to happen to you, good and bad, like, test results, how it was going to work out, like, how your things were going to fare, whether you're going to get married or not, if kids or not, how they're going to turn out. If I knew everything, would I stress less? And then I start thinking, if I knew everything, I'd probably be overwhelmed. Like, can you imagine knowing for certain every single aspect of your life? It would be a burden that you would have to carry. And so then I start imagining, well, what if I had a friend? You know, like a good friend who knew everything about my life, and they knew how everything was going to turn out, and they would just give me guidance and, like, drop different things in my life to go, hey, you might want to get ready for this, you know, because this might come up. And I didn't have to carry the burden of knowing the future but I could just work on me and just work on being prepared for what's next. And that led me to the initial conclusion that if you follow Christ in your life, and you actually follow Christ, not like, I'm here, leave me alone. If you actually follow Christ, you have that friend. Like God is the God of the future. And even though we read about him in the past, he's the God of the future, and he knows what's ahead, and he's already there. And he's preparing the way for you and I to get there. And these circumstances in our life that we don't understand and when honestly we don't love are preparing us to get there. God is that friend who knows everything and he's dropping subtle hints saying, you might want to beef up on this. You might want to read this passage because it's going to come back to you later on and you're going to need to lean on it. And he's working in us on a regular basis. But here's what you and I do. We stress and we don't prepare. And I'm tired of life throwing things at me that I wasn't ready for. Softball pitches that just take me off and, and hit me in the face. And I'm like, whoa, where'd that come from? Uh, I got my feet knocked out from under me. How did that happen? And it's not because life is hard. Life is hard. But we should be ready. And what I believe God is doing in this moment, in this season, where things are changing. We're going from summer into fall. Our kids are going from being home and eating all of the food at the house, all the time, no matter how much food we keep in, to uh, ideally going to school for uh, not long enough, if we're clear. But they're going to go to school. Where we're, we're seeing the, the, the temperature's not really changing. But, like, there's moments where I'm like, maybe uh, the sun is setting a little earlier. And it's a reminder. Things are changing. Maybe for you, you're in a season of your life. You've got a new kid or you're uh, going through a health thing or whatever. Like, there's seasons in our life and they're shifting and they're changing. But are you ready? Are you ready for what's, what's ahead? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at Ephesians. Ephesians is a short book, and, and Paul's writing from prison uh, to the church of Ephesus, and, and he's encouraging the church. And, and chapters 1 through 5, we may circle back around one day and, and cover, but what I want to do over the next several weeks is I just want to zero straight in on chapter 6. 
Like if this was expository teaching, this is the most expository, expository teaching possible. We're going to spend six weeks on one chapter, and we're going to look exactly at what uh, Paul is trying to do to get us ready for whatever season is next, because we're all in liminal space at some level. We're not quite where we want to be, and we're not quite where we were, and, and if we're not intentional about our lives, life will happen to us, and I don't want to do that. I want to be ready, and as our culture is shifting, I want us to be prepared for that shift, and so Paul is right to the church, and, and Christianity, it's in its infancy. It's not even called Christianity in this moment. But Paul is calling things out, and he's encouraging us to get ready, and this book is short, but it's not without uh, a lot of sustenance. It's not without a lot of meat. And so wrapping up this letter, having gone through five other chapters, uh, Paul gets to the, the chase. He gets right to the heart of it, and, and I like things clear. I like things to be uh, up front, and, and Paul does this. He says, uh, there's an enemy and you got to get ready. There's an enemy, he's after you, and you got to get prepared. And what his last words do is they steady us. They ready us, they get us prepared, and he accurately names the enemy, and he describes how we need to work to prepare for the onslaught that the enemy is going to uh, attack us with. And in Ephesians 6, we come to this interesting passage using uh, strong military language in verse 10. It says, finally, implying that he's given us a lot of wisdom. So if you need something to do later, go read the first five chapters. But he's saying, finally, in summation, to wrap it all up, to make sure you don't miss the point of all of it. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Don't get weirded out. We'll cover all of this. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. This is a really strong intro. Where Paul is saying, something's coming. Here's what I know for you and I is that wars are declared, battles are fought. There's been a war declared on your life. The enemy has already declared war on your life. If you align your life with Christ, then we know the war has already been won. We can rest in that. Christ has defeated hell, death, and the grave. Salvation and victory has been given to us. War has been declared on you, though. And there's a battle, though, that you and I have to face daily, hourly, minutes by minute. We are fighting battles, a battle for your attention, a battle for your focus, a battle for your thought life, your prayer life, your marriage, your finances. There are battles that we are fighting. And there are battles that are fought, and there are battles that are won. There's ground that is taken, and there's ground that is lost. And the difference maker for you and I is recognizing that you're in a battle, recognizing that you have an enemy because you lose 100% of the battles you don't think you're fighting. You will always lose when you don't recognize your enemy, when you don't recognize that you're fighting and that's just good marriage advice. You will always lose when you don't realize you're in a fight. And so Paul is screaming at us, saying, don't sleep on this. Don't ignore this reality that there's somebody who 
hates you, that wants to come and kill you and steal from you and destroy you. He wants to take your family and your finances and he wants to take your health and he wants to knock you out. He doesn't want you to get back up. And he's been defeated, but you've got to fight these battles. And what Paul is saying is you're in a fight, so prepare accordingly. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The beautiful thing about the fight that you're in is it doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are because it's not in your strength that we're able to fight. It's in God's. And I think you'll learn how strong you are in every battle. But more importantly, you're going to learn how strong your God is in your battle. And every battle is an opportunity to face an even harder battle. Because God is annoyingly wanting us to realize how powerful he is in you and through you. And your reward for every battle is a Another battle. And he keeps bringing us in and imploring us to fight. And he's saying the strength comes from God. We have to stand strong because there's evil in this world. And it's not evil like we understand. It's not flesh and blood. It's in the heavenlies. And, and, and we don't always see it and we don't always understand it. It's manifest in, in things we can see. It's manifest in culture and people and, 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 and activities. And it's manifest in things we see. But our fight is not against one another. It's not against humanity. Against the evil one. And Paul describes rulers and authorities, powerful uh, rulers of darkness, this evil, pure evil. And what I found to be true about evil is evil is always trying to convince you that it's not evil. Evil is always trying to convince you that it's not actually evil. And our job, according to Paul, is to prepare for evil, to watch for evil, to recognize evil, and to fight it at every front. We don't tolerate it. And then Paul says, stand. I like this. Stand. Stand your ground. Stay on your feet. Don't get distracted. Don't lose footing. Stand firm. Stand firm in the place of blessing that we now inhabit. Stand firm in this church. Stand firm in your position with God. Stand firm in your community. Stand. Be strong. Recognize and prepare for evil. And stand. He's not saying run a marathon. A lot of us would struggle with that. He's not saying go to battle. He's saying stand. We can all stand. All of us, we can all stand. If you've been knocked down, you can stand. If you've had your feet taken out from under you, financially, relationally, health-wise, whatever, you can still stand. Through God's strength, you can stand. And what he's describing, what Paul is describing, is he's describing a warrior. And if you've been in church long enough, you know he's describing the armor of God. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the armor of God and, and, and go through all of the various pieces. And, and we'll talk about that. But the frustrating thing for me about this is that he's describing a warrior and he's describing me. He's saying, you put on the armor. He's saying, there's an enemy coming and I want you to get ready. Now, here's how I think God should fight my battles. I think God should fight my battles and I should watch TV on the couch. Jan gave us a popcorn popper. It's in our kitchen and we make popcorn often. I think the way I should prepare for battles is I should go in and get the corn and I should get the oil and I should put it in the machine. You got to heat it up for two minutes prior, otherwise, you mess the whole thing up. And then you dump it in, you got to salt it appropriately, not too much, not too little. I don't eat dairy, but I have some dairy free butter. I'll melt it, put it on there. And then I think I should sit on the couch. And then discover what's on Netflix. That's how I want to fight my battles. And I want God to take care of it all while I observe from a comfortable position. And a lot of us, that's how we relate to God. Oh, I can't believe I have to deal with this. I thought God was going to take care of it all for me. And it's not that he doesn't go before us. It's not that he's not our rear guard. And it's not that he doesn't take care of things and protect us. 
But Paul wouldn't be describing armor that you and I have to put on daily if we weren't going to be engaged in the battle. So the way that we think and live as Christians is counterintuitive to the way that Scripture is inviting us to be. He's saying, you've got to get ready. But see, a lot of us are pretty passive, if we're honest. I mean, we got a lot of problems. i got tire pressure to keep up with my car, and i got to change the filters on my air conditioner. And, you know, i got stuff. You know what I mean? you got stuff. I don't have time for armor in a spiritual battle with things in the heavenlies. i got popcorn to make and Netflix to watch. And what Paul is saying is, if you're not aware that you're in a battle, you're going to lose it every single time. So be aware that you're in a battle. Be aware someone hates you and wants to kill, steal, and destroy from you. And let's get ready. And at the very minimum, stand. Stand. Keep standing. If you fall, stand back up. Keep standing. Be strong and recognize the strength that is within you. But dress out. Dress out. Get ready. And Paul's using military language to reinforce the sense of danger. He's not using a sports analogy here. You know what I mean? Where we go, oh, that's amusing. He's going, there's a real and present danger that is in front of us. And the most accurate way I can describe it is that it's military. It's war. War is hell. It's hard. People are bloodied and they die and they lose limbs and loved ones. And it's difficult. It's not battle like we think, but it's taking place in the heavenlies. However, the armor of God uh, and all the aspects of it are, are, are not uh, weapons for killing or overcoming opposition by force. The, the six weapons listed are not used in an exterior sense, per se, and we'll describe that as we move forward. The weapons are listed in a way for us to be prepared, and as we're standing, we're prepared for what's coming at us. You're not looking for trouble, right? You're like a pacifist, uh, gun-carrying pacifist, you know? Like, you're ready. But you're not looking for problems. See, some of you, you're just looking for problems, and you're going to find problems. There's thugs and warriors, right? Thugs go looking for problems. Warriors prepare for problems that come. If you're a thug, you have no place here. We have no tolerance for thugs. We don't need problems. If you're here and you're a warrior and you're dressing out, there's battles coming and we've got to fight together. There's a battle coming. And we have six things that we can put on to prepare us. And Paul gives us the representative sampling of, uh, of what life consists of. There's truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation and the word of God. And this morning we're going to talk about the first piece, which is truth. In Ephesians 6, 14, it says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth around your waist. Now, I don't know how much thought you put into your belt today. I didn't put much, but more than I should have, right? It was like brown or black. I don't know. My shirt's untucked. No one's going to see it. It doesn't matter. Uh, I'm also wearing white shoes, so it doesn't matter. I'm wearing black in case you were curious. I didn't need the belt. Uh, my pants fit pretty good. Uh, I didn't need it, but I grabbed it anyway. You don't want to be caught off guard. And so I grabbed it. It was an accessory. It was something extra. It wasn't essential. A lot of us, uh, unless you're buying pants in the wrong sizes or you're dramatically losing weight, uh, you don't need a belt, but you have one probably. If, if we were to, to, to be transported into context of this passage and we were to, to look at belts in, in ancient times, they weren't, they, weren't, uh, they weren't accessories, they were essential. If you didn't have a belt, like for you and I, your pants might slip and it might be embarrassing, uh, but for someone in, in ancient times, if you didn't have a belt, your armor wouldn't fit well. It didn't, it didn't all hold together and it might fall apart. Your breastplate might be hanging out here and, and leaving you vulnerable. Everything wouldn't cinch together. Your cloak wouldn't all be tied together. That a, that a belt was how a warrior held everything together. And, and without it, you'd be 
in jeopardy of, of being wounded or losing your life. And in modern language, we say things like buckle up or strap in or get ready. And what Paul is saying is tie that belt tight. But the belt isn't the point. The truth is. The belt is the visual representation of something deeper that's transpiring. It's truth. And the reason that I think Paul is using the belt uh, to represent truth is because the belt is this physical uh, aspect of, of something that's more important, more essential truth, like the belt is essential to keeping it all together. Have you noticed that the further we get away from the truth, the more things start to fall apart? Like culturally, politically, in our society, the further we get away from truth, the more things to, seem to gravitate towards chaos. I mean, there's chaos in our streets. There's chaos in our towns. There's chaos in our media. Absolute chaos. The further we get away from truth, the more we slide into chaos because without truth, we as human beings are not grounded. We're not prepared. But truth is the core of our armor. And without that, nothing else matters. If we don't get the belt right, it doesn't matter how fancy your helmet looks or how sharp your sword is. If we can't get this right, everything else is for nothing. That it starts with truth, but the issue is truth seems to be all over the place. We've made truth subjective. Your truth, my truth, his truth, their truth. Truth's all over the place. And we've been led to believe that truth is subjective. But if you haven't heard this before, you've been lied to. Truth is objective. Truth can be objective despite what talking heads say, despite what culture and media and society and politics might lead us to believe. Truth is objective. And we live in a society that wants to make truth subjective. But what I've known about fighting, and I'm not great at fighting, so don't test me, but uh, what I know about fighting is if you can confuse your opponent, you have an upper hand. Right? The whole, like, pretend you're crazy and people will leave you alone, you know? If you can confuse your opponent, you have the upper hand, and you have a greater likelihood of winning that battle. And what I feel like is transpiring here is the enemy is choosing to confuse us so that he may have the upper hand. So we walk into a room like this and go, well, David, I don't know if truth really is objective. I mean, I hear so many truths. And there's fake truths, and, and there's fake truths for fake truths, and, and who knows who's right, and, and can we even know, and it doesn't feel right, and, and all of this. And, and if you're confused and in a state of confusion, then you're going to be overtaken. And we don't want to call out right and wrong as a society. But we live like there is no right or wrong. Your right is right and your wrong is wrong and that's for you and maybe somebody else is that way but truth is objective and when we live like this what happens is we fall into humanistic moral relativism. Google it later. We fall vastly and quickly into humanistic moral relativism and we are sliding fast and furious into this mindset that truth is subjective and we live in a world where we don't know what to believe anymore and this confusion is not from God. The pool's been muddied and as followers of Christ, we must stand on truth. We must be people who find and hold fast to truth even though we live in an extremely confusing time where it's hard to know what to believe. Object morality does exist and we have a responsibility to tell everyone that. Object, morality, objective, firm, 
honest, clear morality does exist. If you're wondering if something is a sin, we can find the truth. It does exist, despite what the world may tell us. Truth can be known. And the reason we want truth to be subjective is because we want to be gods of our own universe. If I can create my own reality and my own truth, then all of a sudden I'm in charge. And we love power, and I love being in control. And if I can confuse you with my truth, and and I can stand firm on my truth, I can feel like I'm on the moral high ground, all the while being led astray and leading others astray, that we don't want anyone to tell us what is right and wrong for me. We don't want to subject ourselves to anyone else's authority. We don't want to humble ourselves to a position where others might tell us we're wrong. And the problem is my truth is steeped in my own bias. It's it's, it's laced with my own worldview. Even when I I think that my truth is truth, my perspective is skewed by what I want to believe and, 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 and what I think is right. And I want God to love all the people I love and hate all the people I hate. And I want God to be in my image. And, and often I will create a God in my own image left to my own. And you do the same thing. And we've confused truth with opinion. You have opinions. We all have opinions. You know the saying. Everyone has opinions. Every one of us. But we've changed the, the word opinion for truth. That's my truth. No, that's your Opinion, and you're entitled to it. But truth is something deeper. And I'll be honest, I do my best to come here every week, most weeks, and tell you the truth. As I know it and as I see it, and I submit myself to the word of God, and I do my absolute best to try to not sway anyone or pull anyone to anything other than scripture. But I make mistakes, and you should leave here every Sunday and fact check and dig into the scriptures and look to make sure I'm not wrong because I'm not above being wrong. We all have to search for truth. Not your truth or my truth, but God's truth. And Paul is imploring us to get this right. He's saying, don't mess this one up. Don't mess this one up if we get this right, then we're going to succeed. If we get this wrong, we're going to fail miserably. Only the truth of the word of God can set us free. In Psalm 25, it says, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truths and teach me for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. David is describing truth as something that we can actually learn, a path that we can walk on. He's saying, this way is truth. And if there's a path towards truth, then we can stray from that path. And straying from truth is so difficult to recognize because uh, if you think you're on the right path, your brain has a way of reinforcing what you think, and you just stay on that right path even harder. You know, it's like, no, I'm on the right path. I know I am. This is my truth, and I'm going to stay here. And, and we've all known people who've gone down the wrong path so fast because they thought it was the right path, right? We've all gone the wrong direction. Our spouse has been like, I think you missed your turn. And you're like, no, no way. And you hope she falls asleep before you have to turn back around and go the right way. I'm not speaking from experience. I'm just saying hypothetically, we all know those situations because our brains love absolute. Our brains love to be right, and we will actively defend our wrongness to feel a sense of pleasure because our brains want to be right, but straying from the truth happens so quickly and easily. When we're convinced that false truth is the truth, then we're on the wrong path thinking that it's the right path, and our, our pride reinforces the wrong path, and not only are we led astray, but we strongly defend that And we've all known people who've done it, and the world is constantly lying to us and trying to lure us off the path of truth and righteousness, and many of us, we fall for it, and so we have to get back on the right path. 
We have to recognize we're on the wrong path and then get back on the right path, which makes community so essential. See, there are people that don't want community like this because if we see someone going the wrong way, we have a responsibility to one another to go, I don't think that's the right way. And we do it humbly and we do it kindly and we're figuring it out because we're like children fumbling through stuff, but we know we're supposed to. That's part of community is to go, I don't know if that was right. There's a healthy way and an unhealthy way to do this and we figure that out as we go. But we have to help one another. And people will avoid community because they don't want to be guided or directed. None of us want to be wrong and certainly don't want to be called out for it. And in John 8, it says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings and you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth. And what? That was real passive, but we'll let it slide. The truth is going to set you free. But see, here's the thing. You see on coffee cups and T-shirts and embroidered pillows at your grandmother's house, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we're like, yes, we know the truth, and we'll set, set us free. What we don't often lean into is if you hold to my teachings, Jesus said, you have to hold to his teachings, and then you will become his disciple, meaning you're going to follow and model his life, meaning you're going to reject the, the, the pleasures of the world. You're going to not do what everybody else is doing. You're not going to see the same things and hear the same things. We're going to make sacrifices, and we're going to follow as Christ's disciple, and then we're going to know the truth only after we've done the research, only after we've done the work, only after we've done the sacrificing and we become his disciples. Then we'll know the truth, and it's only after that that we're actually free. See, I just want the freedom. And he's saying, no, you've got to, Hold to my teachings. You've got to be my disciples. And we find that we're set free by the truth of who Jesus is. We can know truth, and it comes to us in the person of Jesus. So the truth is objective. Second thing I want you to know is that truth is eternal. When we find truth in Jesus, it's eternal. It's not momentary. It doesn't blow with the wind. It doesn't come and go. The things that are right now weren't right 50 years ago and on and on. You know, there was a time when we thought smoking on an airplane was fine. And I'm riding on a plane and I'm like, that sign's still there. You know what I mean? So that plane was built a long time ago. I'm concerned. There was a time when we thought things were right and they're not right. And so things are swaying all the time. But the scriptures haven't changed. There's nothing that's changed that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and he will be the same forever. Conditions change, but facts don't. Your conditions don't change the truth. Your opinion doesn't change the truth. Your truth doesn't change the actual truth. We're seeing this play out in the political arena. Facts do not change, even though opinions do. There's a truth in the person of who Jesus is. And in Mark 8, 27, Jesus and his disciples went out to the village uh, around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he said to them, Who do people say that I am? They replied. Some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and still one of the prophets. But Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who you say Jesus is doesn't change Jesus. But it does change how you relate to Jesus. Who the world says Jesus is doesn't change who he is. But it changes how they relate, how we align, how we become disciples, how we believe the truth. Jesus isn't asking the disciples who people say I am because he's really curious, because he cares. He's imploring us to understand that who we say he is, our declaration of faith, and who we believe Jesus to be and why he came and what he came to do is essential. It's vital. Who you say Jesus is doesn't change Jesus, but it changes you, and it changes me. And the world has a tough time accepting the message of Jesus because they have a tough time defining Jesus. We want to make Jesus in our own image. Culture projects onto Jesus a lot of things that aren't accurate. 
There's an astonishing amount of truth mixed in with complete lies. That's how most lies start. It starts with just a measure of truth, just enough truth to inoculate us, to get us to let our guard down. And then a lot of people, they do crazy things in the name of Jesus because they don't understand who he is. They don't have the belt of truth firmly wrapped around him. It's loose. It's hanging. And we have the opportunity to proclaim this truth. We have this responsibility to share this truth. We have this divine mandate to spread the love of Jesus and who he really is. And not from a pious position. No one comes to truth being yelled at. No one comes to truth through manipulation. They don't come to truth through social media necessarily. They come through love and compassion. And we have this responsibility to show people that truth is eternal. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. He's the same today and he's the same forever. This passage goes on to say, have confidence in your leaders. Choose them wisely. Have confidence in your leaders. But choose them wisely. It warns of false teaching, and, and the truth is Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever because he's the same eternally, and, and our leaders, they're not always going to be the same, and they're wishy-washy, and they're back and forth, and, and Hebrews is saying, be careful. Trust your leaders, but make sure you're trusting the right leaders. But you and I, we have this responsibility to align our lives with the truth of who Jesus is, that when we find that truth is objective, we find that it is eternal, then we realize that the objective, eternal truth can only come from God. That's it. Truth is from God. If it's objective and it's eternal, it's from God. If it's minced, if it's wishy-washy, if it's steeped in opinion, it will not be from God. But true truth is from God. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. There's no gray areas in this statement. And we want to put gray areas in these statements and go, well, you know, there's no gray area. Jesus is the way and he is the truth and the life. And how each person responds to the truth of who God is has a, reveals an issue of eternal significance. If we can't relate to the truth of who Jesus is, it's going to affect us eternally. To reject and rebel against the truth of God results in darkness and folly and sin and judgment. And I'll be honest, it's not fun. To accept and submit to the truth of God is to find eternal life. And truth is not something we invent, only something we discover. If you're inventing new truths, it's not the truth, it's an opinion. Truth is something we can discover. And God reveals it to us through his word. Truth is rooted in the eternal, all-powerful, and unchangeable God. Therefore, his promises cannot and will not fail. Every word of God proves true. And many times the most deceitful words that we believe, the biggest lies that we align our lives with, are our own. Not from culture, not from media, we're our own. Our brains have a way of filling in gaps when we don't know all the information. We only know a little bit. For example, you get a test result. You're not quite sure. It's inconclusive. You've got to do some more tests. Your brain fills in the gaps. Does it say you're fine and that you're going to move on? No, it says this is the end, this is how it is. Your brain fills in all the gaps, and then you start to stress and worry, and, and, and we somehow find weird comfort in this, and, and we buy this lie. We don't know all the facts. They're not all on the table just yet. Uh, and, and so we, we buy this, and then we believe it is truth, and we do this for everything, small and large. Our brains fill in the gaps 
it's always the worst case scenario, and then we believe it is truth. And then we say it's our truth, it's my truth. It's not the truth. The facts aren't all in. Many times the lie that we fall for come from our own thoughts and our own words, and, and we've developed a worldview that ignores the truth and believes the lies. We would much rather believe that lie than that Christ is for us and that he's working on our behalf and that he's moving in us and he's using all things to work together for his good. See, the most convincing lies come from our own mouth, which is why we have to stay immersed in God's word. And I'm not good at it. It's a goal of mine for this fall to be better at reading God's word. It's a goal of mine to read God's word. Uh, we got to get better at it. we got to get better at it because the further we get from the truth, the more chaos ensues. The less we're able to see the path of righteousness and stay on it. This is why we need God's word. This is why we need the scriptures. It is our belt of truth. And the further we get from God's word, the further we get from truth. And the more our society moves away from the gospel, the further we slide into our own version of truth, which ensues in chaos. And you and I, we can stop. We can stop and go, okay, it's time to put the armor of God on. It's time to cinch up that belt of truth. Every day we wake up and go, today I'm putting on the belt of truth. And I'm going to make sure I walk in truth, and I live in truth, and I listen to truth, and I avoid the voices outside, and I avoid the voices inside that don't align with God's word and doesn't tell me that I'm a child of God and that I'm worthy and I'm holy, and I'm going to make sure that I listen to God. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you've tried. But I know some of us in this space were laying down. We've been knocked down. It's more convenient to lay down. We're tired, whatever. We've got to stand. We've got to stand. And the point of our armor is to stand firm. Our truthfulness is the work of God's truth, so we stand on the truth of God's word. We get up. He's for me. He loves me. This is not a call to do more. It's not a call to research more. It's not a call to learn more. It's a call to stand. And you're going to want to sit, and you're going to want to lay down, and you're going to want to quit. And Paul is saying, just stand. You don't have to lift, a, lift anything. Sometimes you just have to stand. And arrows may be firing at you. The enemy may be onslaught coming at you. There's thoughts, all kinds of thoughts. We're going to get to helmets, so wait. But there's all kinds of things coming, and it's coming fast. Just Stand. He's not even asking you in this moment to fight back. He's saying, stand, I don't have the strength. Yeah, you're right, I don't either. So don't use your strength. Use God's strength. And we get to lean on one another and borrow each other's strengths. We're hope dealers, so I can deal you a little hope if you need to, and maybe you need to deal me a little hope, and so we can deal some hope to each other. But ultimately, our strength comes from God, and so you say, oh, I'm tired. Yeah, you're tired. Lean on God. Our strength mount up as wings as eagles. We run and we don't grow weary. We walk and we don't grow faint. It's God's word. You're tired. Lean on him. Stand. When everything is done, stand. If you would bow your head and close your eyes this morning. God, we admit in this room that we're tired. Some of us are beat down. Some of us are worn out. Some of us are good and we're happy they're here too. But God, most of us, we're pretty tired and uh, 
and, and we've realized we've probably become pretty lax on truth and we've become maybe off the straight, the straight and narrow. And so, God, in this moment, we're asking for your strength and the ability to come back into right relationship with you. We repent, we uh, say we're sorry, and, and, and God, we're just saying we've got to come back to truth. And so we ask for your strength. I ask that you give strength to every single person in this room, whether they need it or not, uh, because I think we all need it. Uh, those watching online, I ask that you give them strength too, that we find this week starting uh, maybe this afternoon or early Monday, we just have this renewed strength. Maybe it feels like caffeine, but it's not because it keeps lasting. We're asking for strength to endure, to not just endure, but to live, to live a life of faith in Christ. So God, we thank you that we don't have to do this alone, and we praise you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.